You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. At uh, 915 service, you ever sit there and say something that you thought was just to yourself and someone else heard it? Uh, 915, I'm sitting here. And when Jake's baptism picture came up, somebody said, good grief, look at those shoulders. And I spoke up, I turned around and said, thank you so much. <laughs> and the guy said, uh, yeah, yeah uh, your jacket was disguising yours. So uh, it was beautiful. Be careful what you say out loud. All right, the last few weeks in here, we've been in a series called Lost and Loved. And we've been spending time looking at Luke 15 at Jesus' message through a series of stories about he set the stage on what the heart of the Father looks like and how the Father for both sons. By the way, both sons are in the room. The wayward son and the one that never left home. Uh, the heart for both sons. He never stops looking, never stops running, and never stops loving. And as Jesus is teaching this story, it's a story about the gospel. The gospel simply means good news. And on behalf of this good news, I have a question to ask. It's a question that came up in a book that I read over, over the sabbatical that you guys gifted me this summer. The question is, what are we to make of Jesus? This is in a book, a series of collections by C.S. Lewis called God in the Dock. Anybody in here ever started a C.S. Lewis book and never finished it? Show of hands. <laughs> well, that's fans. Hey, here, here. All right. Um, when I typically read one of those books, I have to reread a page probably two, three times. I'll read it and think, man, I don't think I paid that good attention. But here's a quote from chapter, I think it's, uh, I, I don't know the chapter, but I know the, the name of it is what are we to make of Jesus. On behalf of this Jesus that teaches in Luke 15. Jesus was never regarded as just a mere mortal teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. And so what I want to do today, next week, and the following week is spend some time examining how there is no room for mild approval. And I want to do this by looking inside the first chapter of the first gospel, the first biography that we have in the life of Jesus. And by the way, there's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the one that we were given first, the one that was written first, was actually Mark. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to look at Mark. And today it's going to be somewhat of an academic, if not apologetic approach to the way of Jesus and how there is no room for mild approval. Mark begins by saying it this way, the beginning of the good news, in other words, the gospel. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Those two words, good news, are equivalent to the Greek, Greek singular word, gospel. When Mark writes this, the first century eyewitnesses are still alive and still around. And for them, for everyone in the first century, the word gospel was not a religious term like you and I think of it as. In fact, it was somewhat of a media term. The closest we would have to gospel today would be this, breaking news. Instead of it being bad breaking news, this would be great breaking news. I want to give you some examples outside of the Bible on how this use was used in so many different contexts. Perhaps it was announcing an emperor. This was written in 66 AD by Josephus. And quicker than thought, the good news, the gospel of the new emperor spread in the east. It's not in the Bible. That's just a regular, regular secular writing about a new emperor. 
Or perhaps a writing about a new military victory. Two of the archers hurried to Sparta, bringing the good news, the gospel, that the enemy had been captured. That was written in 150 A.D. Or how about this? Occasionally, they would use the word as a funny example. This was written in a play, an ancient Greek play. The butcher rushes into the war cabinet of the city council. Counselors, I bring gospel, the good news. Never have anchovies been cheaper at the market. I hope you giggled a little, like the first century Greeks did. Because the word gospel almost always used to describe breaking news, great breaking news, like a new emperor, a military victory, and of course, can you believe the price of anchovies, right? By using this very well-known word in Mark chapter 1, Mark is letting all of the first century audience and you and I know that there is great news, great breaking news for the entire world. And the question is, what's it about? Well, for the next few weeks, we're going to give thoughts to what it's all about. And the way of Jesus is what I want us to examine. No room for mild approval. On behalf of what it's about, I want to make four observations on what Jesus is about, the way of Jesus is about. And I want to do so by chopping down Mark 1, like analyzing bits and pieces to see how there is a beautiful apologetic approach, almost an academic approach for you and I comprehending the way of Jesus. Number one, it's about a person. And by this, Christianity is fundamentally about knowing and trusting a person. It hits home in the opening line of Mark. Look at it. The beginning of the good news about, about, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, meaning it's about a person singularly focused on Jesus. Do you know that Scholars have studied the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they have examined and found that 25% of the action verbs are tied specifically to Jesus. Meaning Jesus went, Jesus saw, Jesus taught, Jesus healed. The next closest in all four Gospels, only 1% of the verbs are used for another individual. No other figure is given that amount of attention in the Gospels because it is a biography. In fact, we have four biographies on the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to which some of you in the room are thinking, okay, Tim, we know this. What's the big deal? Well, here's why it's important. In an ancient religious context, no other religion has biographies for their founding documents. The way of Jesus is about a person. But if you think about Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, there are tons of passages in their founding documents about rituals, philosophies, ethics, according to their teachers. But none of them have biography as a foundational text. Some of you are still thinking, okay, so what? Well, if you're in this room and you don't quite know what to think of a religion at all, your impression of religion is probably, okay, religion is simply a collection of rules, regulations, and rituals. Understand the way of Jesus is different. It's more like getting to know a person because the way of Jesus is about a person. It is biographical. The founding texts in the New Testament are biographies. There is no room for mild approval because the way of Jesus is about a person. But not only is it about a person, Mark continues, he lets us know it's about real time and real space real events. 
It is grounded in real world, real life events. In other words, it has solid basis, it has evidence, and it can be verified. Meaning, it's not just biographical, it's historical. Once again, I want you to think about the other three world religions that we mentioned. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam. Uh, Hinduism is about wisdom that was passed on, passed along by gods, plural, at the dawn of time to one man that was passed on to many different people. Uh, Buddhism finds its beginnings in philosophical insight that was passed on to Buddha in the month of May and passed on to others, and Buddhism started. Islam, the very words were dictated to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel that had been passed on and passed on. And understand each of those religions, along with all other world religions, their foundational basis are the rules, rituals, regulations that we are well aware of. But you don't find history in the founding documents of other religions. There are no real-time and real-space events, no solid basis as its infrastructure. There's nothing verifiable. Sometimes there are critics of Christianity that point out that the real-time and real-space, the historical criticism on Christianity makes it vulnerable. Consider why they do this. Ready? Here's why. Because other religions are exempt to historical criticism. They have none. There is nothing in their original documents that are associated with historical criticism because they don't make claims in their historical founding documents about real-time, real-space events. But Christianity, the way of Jesus, isn't just about a person. It's about real-time and real-space history. We can locate the teachings of Jesus at a time and a space we can pay close attention to the details of the audience and the city, the time, and the space. And by the way, the way of Jesus is not just reported in the Bible. It's not just documented in the four Gospels. It is documented in secular texts known throughout history. So the death of Jesus did not occur in a dream or once upon a time. His death occurred by crucifixion. Look at this, historical, under the fifth governor of Judea. Real time, real space, real events. We know the dates. And how about the resurrection? Well, it, we have so much great evidence that secular, secular historians struggle with the, the concept. Why are there so many well-documented well -documented texts about hundreds of eyewitnesses at one time? They're confused. The point, the point is this. The way of Jesus isn't just biographical about a person. It's also historical about real time, real space eyewitness accounts. Let's go back to Mark. You'll see it. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Son of God. So it's great breaking news in the first century world. Actual historical news. By the time the readers get to the next chapter, the next paragraph, I'm sorry, the next paragraph in the book of Mark, they find out even more historical details. There's a character that's mentioned. They're well aware of. Verse 4, so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now we think of this character, John the Baptizer, you and I do, as a strange religious figure that wore camel fur, ate locusts and honey, and yelled at the religious. But the original audience from Mark, they knew him as an actual 
historical figure. So much so that there were other first century scholars that were not Christians that even wrote about this first century historical figure. The writings of Josephus. John, surnamed the baptizer, had exhorted the Jews to lead righteous, exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice toward their fellows and piety toward God, and in so doing to join in baptism. The crowds were lifted to the highest degree by his speeches, and Herod Antipas became alarmed. So John was brought in chains to Macarius, Herod's stronghold. That's not from the Bible, that's just Jewish history. Same info though, same time frame, but a secular text. It's not scripture, but it is backing up scripture, the fact that it is historical, real time, real events. Now watch how Mark, let's go back, how Mark launches the beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus. Want to see how he backs it up with history? Verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The point, even John is showing out, it's not just biographical about Jesus. It's historical. It is about real time, real space events. So if you got into a DeLorean time machine, you went back to 28 AD, and you could see John the baptizer teaching, baptizing, getting arrested and taken to Herod. And you could see as he's ushered away, A new historical figure comes to the scene. His name is Jesus, son of Joseph. The reason this is so important from a historical aspect, the way of Jesus, it's not a legend. It is locatable. So it's about a person. It's biographical. It's about real time, real space, real events. It's historical. Ready? Number three, it's about a much bigger conversation the way of Jesus you see there is an eye-opening backstory before Jesus it's one of the themes of this first chapter of Mark there's so much anticipation of the Jewish audience that the great news the gospel of Jesus has been talked about for centuries listen to Mark 1 the beginning of the good news about Jesus Messiah the son of God as it is written Mark says In Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. This is an Old Testament Jewish prediction. Before the Lord comes to the earth, there will be a prophet figure that will get everyone ready for his arrival. Turned out to be John the baptizer. Verse 4 of Mark 1. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. What's the point? Well, the narrative of Jesus, the way of Jesus, is about a much bigger conversation. One that started thousands of years earlier. In the next paragraph, watch how Jesus shows up in the wilderness. Listen to the details. Verse 9, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn apart and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. This is part of a much bigger 
Jewish conversation. An echo from the life of Israel's second king, David, 1000 BC. And a different prophet, not John the baptizer, but a prophet named Samuel. And how the spirit of God fell on David. All the Jews knew the story. 1 Samuel 16, 13. So Samuel, that prophet, took the horn of oil and he anointed him, meaning David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Even more so, King David referred to himself in a metaphorical sense as God's son. Listen to Psalm 2. God said to me, David said, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And all of these details in the backstory of the Old Testament give rise to a deep hope and anticipation for the nation of Israel that one day a descendant of King David, he would come completely filled with the Holy Spirit and he would be God's literal son, not in a metaphorical sense. And Jesus comes to the scene to prove that the way of Jesus isn't just biographical. It's not just historical. It is part of a much larger backstory. And what about the first words of Jesus? Look at Mark 4, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Look at what he says. Hey guys, the time has come. You know that conversation that started a long time ago? The time is now fulfilled. I'm here. The kingdom of God has come near and I am the king. Repent and believe the, the good news. Literally, time is fulfilled. This is what you've all been waiting for. It's the second part of the conversation that started thousands of years earlier. The descendant of King David, the one who the Spirit has fallen upon at all times, the one who speaks on behalf of God to clear up all the confusion on who God is and how much God loves, Jesus would say, I am here. Let's ask the question, why does this matter? Well, trying to understand the life of Jesus without knowing the Old Testament backstory, is like walking into a conversation halfway. And it already started. Anybody ever done that before? Kind of gets confusing, doesn't it? At our house, suppose Jenny and I are having a conversation to uh, something significant. And let's say the door is shut. And the door opens and one of the kids walks in the room. And they just sit there. And we're talking and we kind of do a double take. And then the kids start to ask a question about the second part of the conversation. And they completely miss the first part. And we're like, why are you guys listening? You're eavesdropping. You're so confused. Get back out of the room, all right? There's tons of confusion because they missed the first part. Honestly, if you miss the Old Testament, you could get confused and not understand that Jesus, the way of Jesus is part of an even bigger backstory. The Old Testament is the first part of the conversation. And the Old Testament puts a spotlight on Jesus coming from every page, every story. What does this mean? It's my favorite part. The message of Jesus, the message of Christianity, it didn't come out of nowhere. It had been talked about for centuries. And Jesus is not the founder of a new religion. He is the fulfillment of a massive Jewish backstory and conversation passed down since the creation of the earth and weaved throughout every page of the Old Testament. So the way of Jesus, think about it. No room for mild approval. It's about a person. Meaning it's biographical. The way of Jesus, it's about real time, real space, real events. Meaning it's historical. 
The way of Jesus is a part of a much bigger backstory. A conversation that happened hundreds and thousands of years earlier. And here is the most important part. The way of Jesus, it's about our inner life. Let's look at the first words of Jesus in Mark. It's a call to deep, personal trust in Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Look, repent and believe the good news. So the time has come. Jesus is saying, it's been fulfilled, talked about for centuries. The kingdom of God has come near. Just look at me. I'm the king. I'm a descendant of David. And then he presses in on the response that's deeply personal. You need to repent and believe the good news. Uh, If you're new to church or back to church for the first time in a long time, I want you to know, I believe this from the bottom of my heart, the word repent has been given a bad rap, been given a bad name. I think it's become somewhat damaged by too many people. Some have baggage affiliated with the word. They think it's an ugly word. It's an angry word. It's almost like a cuss word for preachers like, repent, I hate your guts. That's not the Bible word for repent. The Bible word for repent is a beautiful word. The Greek is metanoia. Meta means to change. Noia, your noggin. You change the way you think. That's what repent means. And Jesus is walking around to a first century Jewish audience saying, I need you to change the way you think about the Father and rituals and regulations and laws. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. Change the way you, you, you think about yourself, your marriage. The Father created you. The Father created marriage. The best way to, to accomplish what he said to do as a parent with finances is to change the way you view of, of them and line them up with God's teaching. That's what Jesus meant when he said, repent. To line up your thinking with the Father's thinking. Your thinking with Jesus' teaching. So Jesus says, repent. And then he says, believe. And believe doesn't just mean, okay, think something really hard. Think about it hard enough and it'll become reality. It's not just positive thinking. It's not just like crossing your fingers, believe, or clicking your heels together. I want to believe. I want to believe. It's not just like some leap into the dark. No, Jesus' word for believe means to trust. So this deeply personal message from the way, according to Jesus, is to change your mind and trust. Understand, these are strong words about our inner life, not about external practices. Throughout Mark, Jesus continues to urge people to trust him. Watch. Verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. They were fishermen. Come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for more people. And guess what they did? Verse 18, at once they left their nets, and they followed him. They changed their mind and decided to trust The next verse, you got two more guys. They get their chance. Verse 19, when Jesus had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, Jesus called them. They left their father in the boat with the hired men, and they 
followed him. They changed their mind, and they trusted. So the message of Jesus is about our inner life. It is deeply personal. Here's why I say this. This is the exact opposite of every other religion. Every other religion is based on performance and ritualistic, meaning there are set days, set festivals, set rituals, set behaviors. It's kind of like we view Thanksgiving. No one is concerned about how you view the first Thanksgiving, except your kindergarten teacher. Everybody else is just concerned. They want to make sure that you recognize the occasion. You recognize the day. Religion is performative and ritualistic. But the way of Jesus changed all of this. It's about your inner life. And the way of Jesus is deeply, deeply personal. And yes, there are highly ritualistic and performative versions of Christianity. But that ain't it. At the heart, it is about the inner life. So let's take a second to review according to Mark's gospel. And why there's no room for mild approval. Here's why. It's about a person. The way of Jesus is about real time and space. The way of Jesus is about a much bigger conversation. And the way of Jesus is deeply personal. It's about your inner life. Before we leave today, I want to make a challenge. What would it look like for you, no matter where you are in your faith journey, to take one small step in the direction of Jesus? Like perhaps you made a commitment today. You know what? Okay, I'm going to step toward him and begin to read my Bible on a daily basis. Because it doesn't mean like reading that whole book or a whole chapter. Like reading it in chunks, quality chunks. And asking questions. Okay, is there an example for me to follow? Does God have an example for me to follow as I read this? And as you read it, is is there a sin that I need to say I'm sorry for? As you read this, is there a new thought that God wants me to dwell on for this day to exchange my old way of thinking? And as you read this, is there a promise that God wants me to claim to hold tight? Perhaps that's your step toward Jesus to start reading your Bible. Or maybe a step is simply to come back next week and to make this thing, this hour on Sunday, a special time that you learn songs and you learn scripture, you learn stories, you learn facts about the way of Jesus. Or maybe your next step is, let's get in a group. Let's try it out. Find other people that are on this faith journey and open up and let the large campus begin to feel a little bit smaller. Maybe your next step is to get baptized. Maybe it's to say, you know what? I'm ready to get plugged into this church. Whatever the next step is, I want you to think about a next step because I know this beyond a shadow of a doubt in this room. There's some of you that have yet to do anything about the way of Jesus. You have yet to make a move. And I know what some of you think. Okay, I'm sure there's a God and Jesus probably has something to do with it. But until I get all my stuff squared away, until I get all my answers addressed, before I try it, 
I need more data. I need more research. I need more facts. I need to remove all doubt, okay? It's like you want to approach like you do your job. I have a question for you on behalf of all those things. Ready? Have you ever tried those things in a human relationship? Like just operating on data and formula and research, like robotic. Doesn't work. The message of Jesus is much more like a human relationship than a mathematic formula. And yes, today I have given research. I've given you data. But I'll never be able to answer all your questions. I'll never be able to remove all your doubts. But a healthy relationship, you know what happens? You take a step in the direction of the other. And when something comes back that's strong, that's solid, you take another step. And I want to close today with the words of King David, who took many steps, so many that he was known as a man after God's own heart. Perhaps you could soak these words in as we close. King David said, hey, why don't you taste and see? Try it. Move in this direction. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Because as you think about it, there really is no room for mild approval. In the way of Jesus, it's about a person. It's a biography. The way of Jesus, it's about real time, real space, real events. It's historical. The way of Jesus, it's a part of a much bigger conversation. There is a backstory that's leaning in the direction, every page of the Old Testament, toward the coming of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is deeply internal, not external. With heads bowed and eyes closed. I want to encourage you today on the way of Jesus to do the very thing that David said to do. David said, his version of saying to move, take steps in the direction of the Father is simply, hey, taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, I pray that you would have your way in this moment. Thank you for a unique approach to the way of Jesus according to the writings in the Gospel of Mark. And I pray this today in Jesus' name.